0: Hello and welcome to Three Worlds Podcast Series 2, Episode 7. I'm going to carry on talking about ritual objects and the use of objects and things like that. There's a surprise, I bet you thought I'd do something completely different. So... Last time I talked a little bit about the three traditions that I worked with and introduced in such a brief way various things like Zuni fetishes and mirrors and on-god dolls and uh, the Purva and various things like that. So I'm going to try and go back into a little bit more depth now and talk about things, talk about the ways of working with some of these objects. Um, so... I think I'll start with the purba. Purba is kind of quite central to my practice. Um, Like I said in the last podcast, uh, I've kind of been working with it since I was 15 and I'm almost 62 now. So that's kind of quite a long time. It's a ritual knife. It's a ritual dagger. It has three blades that are kind of like um, spokes or fins or flights on an arrow. They're made from various materials, but mostly they're made from metal or they are made from wood. Um, occasionally they are made from horn. Um, I'm just racking brains to see if they're made of anything else no i think i've never seen anything else other than those three things and mostly they're made from wood or metal in nepal they tend to be made of wood in tibet they tend to be made of metal but you do also find uh wooden ones in tibet as well they started off life as a shamanic object i think there's a saying amongst some of the Nepalese shamans that they kind of developed all of these practices first and then the Tibetan Buddhists came along and kind of stole the ideas and went and changed them slightly and adapted them to Buddhism and did their own things. So um, the puruba seems to be a tradition that has its roots in shamanism There are various stories about where it comes from. One of them is that it was actually a tent peg, that in the past it was from the nomads who had tents and would use the tent peg to drive in around the edge of the tent, obviously to hold the tent down, and uh, the Purba developed from that. So it was a way of fixing things, staking things down, and certainly that's one of the main ways of working with the Purba. Um, the purva, because it's a dagger, is used to stab. As I said in the last podcast, it's used to stab, destroy, pierce uh, demons that obstruct us. And these can be physical demons external to us, um, spirits, basically. Um, or they can be, in meditative practices, our own our uh, inner demons, our fears, our doubts, our ego, our arrogance, whatever it is that we, as a human being, are practicing to try and eliminate or try and subdue so the ones that are made of wood are generally carved, and um like I say they 're mostly used by shamans in Nepal, and the ones that are made of metal well um the best ones or the ones that are considered the most powerful are the ones that are made from iron or at least have iron blades. Now, in lots and lots of cultures... Iron is considered to be a really important magical thing. It's very much part of the British tradition, um, European tradition. For instance, fairies, it's supposed to protect you against fairies if you carry a, an iron nail, and that's the origin of the iron horseshoe above the door too. Nowadays it's seen as a lucky sign, but it's lucky because it stops the fairies getting into your house. Nasty things, fairies. Don't want fairies in your house. So um, it's very, you know, good to have an iron one. Sometimes they have an iron blade that is set into like a bronze handle. Uh, sometimes they're entirely made of bronze. Sometimes they're made of copper. There's a, 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 a recent more modern version of them that are made entirely of silver or a sort of cheap um, silver alloy. These tend to be made in China Um iconographically they're kind of generally correct but the material isn't right there's nothing necessarily wrong with them but the fact that they're made of silver or silver colored material isn't very traditional and it's not considered to be a particularly auspicious and powerful metal so with the poraba you have these three blades very often you'll have snakes that intertwine, like the Caduceus sign, like the sign for medicine. You know, you have those two intertwining snakes that come up the staff. It's very much part of the Purabha. You have these intertwining snakes that go up the blades. And um, not all of them have them on, but a lot do. And then at the top of the blades, you have uh, a, a sea monster's head, a sea monster called a Makara. And the blades kind of emerge from its mouth. Makara's are strange mythological creatures that are part crocodile and part elephant. And I don't actually remember what they are. They're a hybrid. There's other animals in the mix as well. And I'm not very up on Makara's. But Makara is the bit that the blade comes out of. And then above the Makara, you have the sort of the handle part, as it were. And that's sometimes in the form of a doje or um, uh, a vajra is the Sanskrit name. That's the the kind of little um, scepter that Tibetans have that accompanies the bell. And it's the male aspect and uh, it's a thunderbolt. It's a stylized thunderbolt. And then above the uh the the, the center part, the doji, you have different things, as I said last time. You have sometimes a face, um very often you have a face, sometimes you have three faces, uh, sometimes you have a face with a horse's head coming out. And I've seen one Puraba recently that it was just a horse's head. That was from Mongolia. Um so they vary and it, that slightly depends. Depends on the nature of the puruba. The uh, the horse's head is a being called heagriva, and heagriva is uh, a Tibetan being that has got a horse's head coming out of the top of its own head. And the teaching of that is that the horse's head screams and the scream is so piercing that it shatters the illusion of reality all around somebody. So um, it kind of uh, it's all about shattering illusion and showing reality for what it really is. So you have this kind of ritual dagger. And it's got two ends. It's got a pointy end and a blunt end. The blunt end is the handle. The pommel, I think, is the word for a sword. I'm not quite sure if that's the word for the top of a knife. But anyway, you have the blunt end and the pointy end. Pointy end is the business end. It's the bit that stabs. And the blunt end is the bit that is used for blessings and more peaceful practices. So with the pointy end, you would use it for... Uh, pinning down a a demon or symbolically pinning down a negative sort of aspect of yourself. Um, There's a tradition that I'm going to talk about, probably not in this podcast, called liberation, which is uh, about killing spirits of illness. Um, And they're used in that practice. So I'll try and get to talk about that maybe next time. Um, They are used to Empower things too. Uh, I've seen them used by putting the blade into like a cup of water and it's stirred and that empowers the water so that the water can be drunk as a, a sort of empowered medicine. Um, they're also used to mix herbs and various other things in the same way. Actually using the blade of the puruba acts as, a, as an empowerment wand, so to speak. So they're used for that. They are danced with and pointed towards the directions and sort of symbolically used to sort of attack enemy or hostile spirits. That is often a gesture used in the dance. They're held in the right hand because they're considered to be a male thing. Now, in terms of initiation into their practice, you are supposed to be initiated. The name of the spirit in Tibetan is Dorjipurba uh, or Vajra Kalaya to use the Sanskrit name. They're used mostly by Tibetan Buddhist monks and practitioners, but they also are, as I've said, very much a shamanic object, although they they don't tend to get used by the shamans in Mongolia. It's more Himalayan shamans that use them. In Mongolia, they are used, but it's mostly by Buddhists. Seem to be sliding into the whole kind of necessity of talking about empowerments, so uh, perhaps a better launch into that a little bit. In Tibetan Buddhism, you are considered that you need to be initiated into a practice. And this initiation is often called an empowerment. And the same is true of most shamanic cultures. If you're going to learn a teaching, you have to be initiated into it. Teachings are not casual affairs and certainly not in Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, so the Purabha practice, for instance, you are technically supposed to be, as I say, empowered into. Now, empowerment in the Tibetan sense is you are made into a link in the long line of chain that stretches right back practitioner to student, who then became practitioner, who empowered students, etc., etc., that goes right back to the very first Teacher. Now, in some aspects of Buddhism, that's the Buddha, the historical Buddha who lived two and a half thousand years ago. In the Tibetan magical Buddhist traditions, it tends to be more Padmasambhava. Now, Padmasambhava was a magician, a shaman figure, and in fact, some of the traditions in the Himalayas considered him to be a first shaman. He Probably came from the area of northern Pakistan and he was a Tibetan Buddhist tantric practitioner who lived in the 8th century and he was invited into Tibet to bring the teachings into Tibet. Um, He came into Tibet, he's considered in Tibet to be the second Buddha, but the tantric Buddha, uh, the magical Buddha. And so he initiated a lot of these practices, and therefore, in empowerment lineages, they go right back to him. He was said to have come into Tibet and tamed all of the shamanic spirits of Tibet that were there originally, because Tibet was a magical shamanic culture. And when Buddhism came in, all of the spirits were there and they were a bit pissed off with the Buddhists coming in. So Padmasambhava is said to have sort of ridden all over Tibet and the surrounding countries in the Himalayas. Himalayas? Himalayas? Them pointy mountain things. Uh, and subdued all of the spirits in those places and uh, converted them to Buddhism so that they became protectors of Buddhism. So to be empowered into the use of the Purba in a Buddhist way, you need to be initiated, empowered by somebody who is an authentic practitioner who has been empowered who was empowered, who was empowered, who was empowered, blah, 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 all the way back. Um, And then you are given the practices to do, but you are not allowed to empower other people unless you are authorized to do so, because you are seen as being somebody that is capable of giving those empowerments. So it's a little bit like a tree, but with lots of little side shoots and those side shoots end. I'm... A side shoot. I do not have the authority from a Buddhist perspective to empower people into the practice of Dojipurba, but I have been empowered into the practice of Dojipurba. Empowerments in Buddhism come that way. Empowerments in Shamanism can be given by practitioners that have been empowered, who were given empowerments by etc., etc., But they also can come directly from the spirits in a visionary way. And for that, you have to have a good relationship with the spirits. And that is also dependent on the tradition. In Buddhism, that is not really the tradition, except that in rare occasions it is, because certain very powerful and very established Buddhist practitioners that are held in high regard actually do have visionary experiences where they are given practices from the the spirits, which they then are able to pass on. Um, But that is a rare thing um, and certainly not something that is generally considered to be uh, ordinary. So shamanism and the empowerments that the spirits give us directly is a sort of... It's a sort of going direct to the source and you have the ability to do that if you do shamanism. But I would really warn caution because it's so easy for us to be in fantasy and we have to be very careful about what is really coming from the spirits and what is coming from our wishful um, kind of imagination basically, not to put too fine a point on it. So it's always important, I think, to look at the circumstances around things. I'll give you an example from me, and I'm not saying that I'm the bee's knees or anything silly like that, but this this is something that happened to me. I was doing some shamanic work and my spirits turned up with a Tibetan being, and I was given the empowerment for a Tibetan being called Damchen Gawa Nagpo. Now, Damchen Gawa Nagpo is a blacksmith spirit. I had no prior intention for this spirit to turn up, it was a complete surprise. I was given the empowerment, and then Later on that day, I started talking to uh, a a Buddhist lama friend of mine because I wanted to find out more about this being, and I was told that his Rinpoche was doing an empowerment for Damchenkawa and Nagpo the next day, and so... I uh, I was able to receive the empowerment from my spirits on the one day completely unexpectedly and then given the empowerment from the Rinpoche again completely unexpectedly on the next day. When those sorts of things happen, you have to sort of pay attention to them because I didn't go into that thinking oh, I'm going to go and get an empowerment from... It just happened, and so that that for me is feels like there 's a certain degree of um, correctness about it then of course i I researched more about Damchen Gawa Nagpo and discovered that he was Dammjen Doleg, uh, which is uh, a Mongolian. Uh, blacksmith spirit and a shaman spirit in that respect and uh, he's now become a major and a uh, powerful and important spirit figure in my pantheon of shamanic spirits but he's also a Tibetan Buddhist spirit as well. This is the sort of interchange between shamanism and Buddhism in that central Asian area. Now with Doji Purpa the empowerment for that I took it quite deliberately. Uh, as I said, I started doing a kind of purpa practice when I was 15. Um, by the time I'd got into my 40s and I was still working with purpas, uh, and had learnt little bits and pieces along the way, but I had never received the empowerment, uh, I decided that uh, I'd actually better go and get the empowerment. And so I actually arranged that and was able to receive the empowerment from Rinpoche. And, uh, And then I was given the proper Tibetan practices and I started working with those as well as my more ad hoc shamanic practices. And I've also worked with my friend Bola, the Nepalese shaman, and received some teachings from him as well. So my Purpa practice is a bit of a hybrid of Uh, traditional Tibetan Buddhist practice and Nepalese shamanic practice and what my own spirits taught me when I was 15 and um, what I have subsequently been taught by my spirits since then. I can't give anybody the empowerment for purpa practice, but what I can say to you is that if you feel strongly moved by the purba and it's something that you are not just grabbing at but it's something that you really feel connected to i would suggest that you do a shamanic journey to go and talk to your spirits about it and ask them if it's okay for you to have empowerment in some way or to be given teaching so that you have the ability to begin to work with it now to a buddhist that's going to be heresy and to some shamans traditional shamans that's going to be a bit of heresy as well but i think We in the West have to kind of cut our own furrow, as it were. There are so few opportunities for us to get empowered in these traditions. And I don't want to kind of say, yeah, just do what you like and don't care about the consequences. But I do think approach it respectfully, and I mean really respectfully, and really with a sense of sincerity and a sense of... Real care and attention to detail with it. Honesty, ruthless honesty about it for yourself. And if you feel with that ruthless honesty that it is right for you, then I would suggest that you're going to talk to your spirits. And then if the opportunity arises for you to get traditional teachings, traditional empowerment, etc., either from a Tibetan Rinpoche or from a shaman that works with these traditions, then get that as well get that as well because it's really good you can never have too many empowerments i think so long as you don't collect them like stamps and stick them away in a folder and never use them but part of the uh reason why empowerments are given well there's two reasons really one is to protect the teachings because you don't want uh kind of people who really haven't got a clue grabbing hold of a teaching they don't fully understand practising it and then kind of running off with it and teaching somebody else. And then it's like the whole tradition becomes watered down and lost. So that's part of the reason for seeking authenticity and seeking proper empowerments from people who are able to give those empowerments. The other side to that is a lot of these practices are actually dangerous. They are heavyweight practices, especially in the Tibetan traditions, what are called the wrathful practices, uh, of which Dorji Purabha is one. So a wrathful practice is really going to stir things up. I have a, a Tibetan Buddhist Rinpoche friend who... Uh, talks about George and uh he's got a couple of stories about the empowerment but one of the things that he actually says very clearly is that he only gives it to people when he considers they're ready because it in effect it tends to shred their lives um It will cause all sorts of things to happen. It's kind of like a catalyst. It's kind of like a dose of salts. It's going to blow your system apart and give you a deep cleanse. And that deep cleanse is not going to be very comfortable for most people. So people who take the doji purba empowerment will often find that all of the sort of mundane aspects of their lives tend to fall apart and they are left only with the spiritual practices in their life. And that may sound great. You may say, wow, that's really wonderful. That's great. That's what I want. I want to be really deeply entrenched in all of my spiritual practices. But you just pause for a moment and you think about that. All of the mundane aspects of your life falling apart, that's like your relationship breaks up. You lose your house, your car gets stolen, etc., etc., etc. All these things are really, I'm not going to say they're going to happen. I'm not going to say it's inevitable, but these things are catalysts. They are designed to shred life in that way so that you are only left with the important aspects of life. And you've got to be prepared for that. I was in a sweat lodge once. I was in a sweat lodge, uh, which was done as a karma lodge. It was done as a lodge that where people were calling the karma to them. Um, now, uh, yeah, I don't need to go into the town of Native American technicalities of that. And in some respects, it wasn't a completely traditional lodge, but it was a powerful lodge. And, uh, you were invited to call your learnings to you. That's that's the kind of a better way of saying it, rather than karma. You were invited to call your learnings to you so that you could deal with the things that you needed to deal with in your life at this time. It was a deep cleansing. It was like a wrathful sweat lodge, if you want to think of it from a Tibetan point of view. So people were invited if they wished to, to do that. I didn't. I was too sensible or too chicken. I'm not quite sure which. But some people did, but they were always encouraged to say in a beautiful way and to put safeguard filters all the way around it. And I remember one person just sort of said, I want all my learnings to come and I want them to come now. And it's like everybody in the sweat lodge ducked. (laughs) You can imagine. It was like, Oh, my God. So um, the same thing happens with a wrathful empowerment. You've got to be really committed. You've got to be really careful and you've got to be really meaning it. So not to be entered into lightly. But the purba is a wonderful tool and it's a very powerful tool. And I do use it a great deal. There's a huge amount of magical tradition around it. There's a wonderful concept in Tibetan traditions, uh, Of Terma. Now, the story is that when Padmasambhava came into Tibet in the 8th century, he, being a great magician and uh, an enlightened being, decided, or not decided, but saw, recognized that Tibet would go through periods of darkness, periods of suffering, periods where the teachings would be lost or would become weakened. And so he hid in magical ways. Ritual objects and also teachings, in different locations across the whole of Tibet and the surrounding country, and these hidden treasures are called terma. Now, terma are hidden in a magical way, and um, they are. Uh, perhaps put inside rocks or behind cliff walls or you know they're really hidden but they're hidden in a magical way and guardian spirits were put all around them and only the right person at the right time knew how to do the magic to reveal them and these people are called turton turton are treasure revealers so a turton discovers terma and Padmasambhava hid an awful lot of uh, terma purbas. I've actually been lucky. I have held many terma purbas made of iron. And the story behind these purbas is that they were made by the blacksmith spirit, Damjen Gawa Nagpo, and they were given to Padmasambhava. And then Padmasambhava hid them and centuries afterwards, Turton magicians knew where they were, the spirits told them, and they put their hands into rocks or whatever it was, and they pulled out these purbas. Purbas are one of the things that get hidden, like I say, lots of other things do too. And I've been able to actually hold purbas that were said to have been made by the blacksmith spirit and given to Patmasambhava in this way. Wonderful, wonderful ancient iron purvas. Um, the Rinpoche that I know has got many of them in a in a case in his shrine room and they are quite extraordinary things and I was in the shrine room with him talking we were talking about objects and having a good old kind of technical chin wag which was absolutely wonderful and he was passing me these purubas for me and I was able to hold them which was, I have to say, one of the highlights of my life wonderful thing to have experienced so purubas are... Incredible things. They get used for so many different things, but you do really need the empowerments. And so I do encourage you to either get the empowerment from a Rinpoche or at least go talk to your spirits, but do it with a lot of circumspection and a lot of awareness. Um, Yeah, okay. We've talked a lot about Puripas this time. So uh, I'll go on to talk about other things at other times because I'm looking at the clock on my recording equipment here. I think it's probably time to wrap this one up. And um, so I thank you. I thank you very much for listening. I hope that I've been giving stuff that is interesting and kind of useful and a bit fun as well. And uh, I'll just finish with my normal array of... um, Websites. So, email address first, nick at sacredhoop.org. Sacred Hoop magazine is sacredhoop.org forward slash offer.html. And the Three Worlds Gallery website, where you can see lots of purbas and other objects, is three, the number threeworlds.co.uk. Um, that's about it. Thank you very much. I will be back soon with another, uh, another, (laughs) my tongue doesn't work. Ah, I've talked too long. I'm going away now. Bye-bye.